Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 61, Not Knowing, is the Worst Part. Last time, the 23rd Division of General Komatsubara had launched their latest attack against the Soviet Mongol soldiers in the Halha area during the early morning hours of July 3rd. They had surprise on their side, but that one advantage was cancelled out by their inability to take some of their armor across the river to the north, thus facing the larger armored force of Zhukov and the almost suicidal way the Russian leader threw in his men. And having lost so many of their own tanks, the Kwangtung headquarters had decided to pull back their remaining armor. But all this was so much closing the barn door after the horses had escaped. The Japanese offensive had been a dismal failure because they did not really know what they were up against and due to the quality and quantity of the Russian forces. But if those reasons were the real reasons for the Japanese loss, then how did that gel with what these young Japanese men had been told since birth, that their spiritual power was much greater than any Russians, and weapons, no matter made of what material, couldn't change that? As long as the warrior was focused and ready to give all for his emperor, victory would be theirs. Perhaps the defeats of May and early July were anomalies. Surely this type of outcome would not become the norm. No, the men of the Kwangtung would be back, and next time, victory and their enemy's shame would be the result. But Zhukov's life wasn't all that glorious after the battle either. Moscow wanted to know how in the hell did the enemy, even with the Russians on high alert, sneak some 8,000 men to their side of the Halha River? And what about the way the general threw in his tank units and infantry regiments? Piecemeal? That's not how a general was supposed to think. But just like when he learned that Komatsubara had crossed the river, Zhukov stayed calm in reacting to these questions. Questions like these that normally led to a death sentence. Part of the answer was that the Japanese got across the river by sheer daring. Who would possibly think they would do that? But as for how he handled himself after the fighting had started, the general did not apologize for that either. It had worked. Yes, the 11th Tank Brigade and the 7th Mechanized Brigade had suffered higher than expected casualties, but the enemy had been checked. The two Japanese forces had not linked up. Again, results were what mattered, and Moscow could not argue with that. Yet the chief defense commissar did rejoin with, Why did you let them get away after you had beaten them? But Zhukov was ready for that too. He answered, Well, I have been asking you for more men, more tanks, more planes, and more guns. And if I had all those, they wouldn't have got away. The reply from Moscow was, You will have them. Zhukov learned of other things as well from this latest clash with their traditional enemy. There was something to this massed armor. Of course, Russia, like most industrialized countries, had played with this idea. But the general was picturing an endless flat plain with hundreds, if not thousands, of tanks holding together surging at the enemy. But until Germany showed exactly how effectively this worked in the West, Zhukov 
would hold his tongue. The conversation ended between Zukov and Moscow, for now, on the agreed note that this was not just another border dispute. Something larger was going on here. In fact, Moscow had already confirmed this, using their spies, centered around Richard Sorge, or Sergei, in Tokyo. The upshot was that General Zukov would get the additional tens of thousands of men he was asking for. Soon, every train heading east from as far away as Moscow, every transport in the Far East, would become a part of this ramping up parade that would see the Russians with enough forces to defend themselves even better should the Kuangtung try something again. And they were about to. General Komatsubara could not return to Halar with the situation thus. Instead of leaving the area completely, the 23rd Divisional Commander camped to the north at Kamchir Miao, where he and his men thought of a way to reduce Russian superiority in weaponry. The best idea that came to them was that darkness, the traditional friend of the Japanese infantry, would minimize Soviet weapons. Darkness would allow the infantry to get in close and do what damage could be done, take what land could be taken. And having decided that this was enough, Komatsubara launched another attack without armor on July 7th. Starting at 9.30 that night, prefaced with a 30-minute barrage, the men of the 64th and 72nd Regiments advanced against the Soviet 149th Infantry Regiment and supporting Mongolian cavalry, stationed on the eastern side of the Halha, just north of the Soviet bridge. The Russians gave ground, having been surprised, again, but with reinforcements managed to get some of the territory back. Yet the result was a net Japanese gain, but a costly one. What the Japanese were about to find out was that the Soviet engineers had been busy since late May building other bridges. Now there were seven across either the Halha or the Holsten, and one was just built under the water surface, so it looked as if though Soviet trucks were driving over the water when it was used. As the Russians now had more men in the area, these bridges allowed them the opportunity to outflank the enemy in different areas. To it, Komatsubara ordered, they had to go. Though the Japanese had pushed back somewhat, the Russian-Mongolian force just east of the river, their other successes were in destroying two of the Soviet bridges. Anything Komatsubara could do to limit enemy access across the river was worth the price that he, or rather his men, paid, and the general kept sending in his men. From July 8th to the 12th, the Japanese attacked the enemy forces on their side of the river every night. And as on July 7th, they ended up taking more land than losing again when the sun rose, but their casualties were mounting. Still, they were coming ever closer to the original Soviet bridge. During the last consecutive night of attacks, July 11th, Komatsubara had brought together all three battalions of Yamagata's 64th Regiment and elements of Colonel Sakia's 72nd Regiment. The general ordained the bridge would be taken that night. When the attack was launched, the larger-than-normal number of Japanese troops overawed the Russian-Mongolian defenders. 
several Russian tanks were climbed up on and incendiary or other bombs were dropped in. Clearly, the Russians' next line of tanks needed a latch that locked from the inside. The Russians were pushed back by the sheer momentum of the attack. Now the Japanese were less than 2,000 yards from the bridge. But as their lead units were only 500 yards from the bridge, some 30 Soviet armored cars and tanks appeared and stopped the men in their tracks. And before they could regroup to push forward again, Soviet infantry and armor attacked them from one side, focused artillery from the other. The Japanese, in response, then amassed their rapid-fire guns, hoping to push back the armor and armored cars. But this just made the job of the larger artillery guns safe on the western side of the Halha that much easier. Each way the Japanese infantry turned, tantalizing close to the Soviet main bridge, they were met by infantry, falling shells, armored cars, or tanks. The night of July 11th, gave way to the daylight of July 12th. The Japanese had kept the Russians at bay, but lost many men in the process. But then, after hours of the Japanese soldiers fighting just to survive, the Soviets unleashed two fresh infantry battalions and at least 150 armored cars. This was too much, even for Japanese spirituality. The survivors were pushed back, almost to their starting point. Most of the land they had gained over the last few days was lost. But Komatsubara had not stopped the attacks because of how many men he had lost or had been wounded, with nothing to show for it. No, the general called off the attacks because he was informed that massive amounts of artillery reinforcements were on their way to him. It was time to negate one of Russia's advantages. On its way to Komatsubara was every artillery unit of the Kwantan Army. Plus, the Army General Staff was sending the 3rd Heavy Field Artillery Brigade from Tokyo. This brigade alone had one regiment of 16 150mm howitzers, the 1936 model, the most modern, and a regiment of 16 100mm artillery guns from 1932. But what would really make this addition to the Japanese attack potent was that both regiments were fully motorized. Their guns pulled by tractors, their large quantities of ammunition carried by trucks. And yet, the 3rd Heavy Field Artillery Brigade coming from Tokyo came with a condition. The Army General Staff wanted the Kwangtung to hit the Soviets and hit them hard. But after gaining their revenge, the 23rd Division... No, the entire Kwangtung was to pull back. This entire affair was not going the way Tokyo wanted it to. Not only was the 23rd Division losing battles, but as each attack had been larger than before, this had the probability of escalating the conflict. And at the moment, Tokyo and the Army General Staff were still focused on winning in China. Whereas the Kwangtung had other ideas as to what they should do with these reinforcements. They were going to win this battle once and for all. Revenge for their losses in May and July would be just the beginning. Of course, Tokyo was not informed of this. Before July was over, the 23rd Division had gathered most of the guns coming in and placed them as close to Nomahan as they dared. 
surrounding the village was 86 large guns, a mixture of 100mm, 120mm, and 150mm artillery pieces. In charge of these weapons was Major General Uchiyama. And, as the Japanese had pulled back so unexpectedly, the Soviet guns, men, and armor were still in the area. Uchiyama would use this information. He would soon pour down thousands of shells onto the enemy. The idea was simple. Japanese guns would fire up to 15,000 rounds each day for several days. The Russians and Mongolians would be shattered, which would allow the Japanese infantry to rush forward and take the first Soviet bridge. Then the Japanese guns would focus their aim across the river and obliterate the enemy there. The artillery would lead, the infantry would follow. But during this organization of Japanese heavy guns, Zhukov's first army group was not only receiving more men, but also two additional artillery regiments and thousands of tons of shells. As dawn came on July 23rd, the Japanese opened up with all their guns in the area. Before too long, the Soviets replied in kind. The shadows of thousands of artillery shells skimmed over the Hauha River. As much as each side was firing, as the men got into a rhythm, the frequency increased. But then the Japanese noticed that the rate of the Soviets' return fire matched and then exceeded their own. Guns that the Japanese had thought they had taken out earlier were now firing from a different position. What's more, as the Russians were firing from the higher slope of the western side of the river, the gunners could see the impact of their solutions, and so were able to raise their accuracy throughout the day. Clearly something had to change for the Japanese. So planes were sent up, but the Russians sent up even more planes, and soon, very soon, the sky belonged to them. Then the Russian fighters started strafing the Japanese gun positions as if their torment were not enough. The Japanese then responded, I'm not sure why, with some old-school tactics. Men in balloons were sent up to help with Japanese aiming, but Russian planes took out two of these, and the rest were pulled back to the ground. By the end of the day, July 23rd, the Japanese had shot off some 10,000 shells, the Russians some 20,000 more than that. That night, the shelling stopped, on both sides. The Japanese, still staggering from the day, hoped, or perhaps calculated, that the Russians had to be low on shells. Tomorrow would belong to the attackers. But it was not to be. During the night, General Zhukov had all of his guns brought forward, along with their tons of shells. So when July 24th came, and the shelling commenced, Komatsubara and his men were devastated that the Russians fired even more shells as their accuracy improved. What's more, Zhukov was devoting more and more of his guns to taking out the Japanese guns rather than killing soldiers, as they were spending the day digging deeper and deeper into the earth. On July 25th, the third day of this artillery duel, the Japanese had already spent two-thirds of their ammunition, whereas the firing from the Russians had not only seen an increase from the second day, but another increase on the third day. 
But what sealed the deal for the Russians was that their guns were arranged in three lines, the closest one being about 8,000 yards away from the Japanese guns, who had never trained to shoot more than 6,000 yards. So for all the firing going on from the Japanese, it was truly luck for them to hit anything. The Russian guns of the second and third line were as safe as had they been firing from Moscow. With the situation thus, Komatsubara and Kwangton headquarters independently decided to halt their firing. All it was doing was getting their men who were near their guns killed as the Russians were firing at them, trying to take them out. The word was given on July 25th to halt the shelling. It had been another failure. As for the Army General Staff back in Tokyo, while the shelling war was playing out, all this had become too much. Not the defeat after defeat, but the numerous times Kwangtung had defied them. Of course, it would have been fine if the local forces had defeated the Russians, but they hadn't. And each time, there was an escalation. That would not do. There was only one thing for it. A political solution was needed. Yet when word of this got back to Kwangtung, the leadership there refused to countenance this. After so many of their men had died for this border dispute, pride and honor dictated that they win in the end. But the army general staff saw this truculence as their failure to bring the Kwangtung to heel. So General Isogi of the Kwangtung was ordered to Tokyo to discuss the next phase of Nomahong. The general came alone, carrying the honor of the Kwangtung with him. The meeting opened up on July 20th, just before the fighting was to get underway. The general staff opening move was to state that this situation would be solved unilaterally by winter at the latest. With that, Isogi was handed a document entitled Essentials for Settlement of the Nomahan Incident. But this document was not simply a list of specific activities the Kwangtung were not allowed to engage in in the area. This was a step-by-step program for pulling back while the politicians handled the matter. And if a settlement could not be reached politically, the Japanese would, on their own, pull back to the boundary as understood by the Russians. But Isogi didn't wait to take it back to Kwangtung before reacting. He spoke up for his brothers in arms. He passionately declared that the Russians were not strong enough in the area to go on the offensive, which one can easily debate. So it made sense to him to stand firm now, thus ensuring they would go no further. And then, as to slap some sense into the army general staff, the general asked, was the imperial army willing to accept the reduction of their territory because the enemy said so? He then brought up the thousands of dead Japanese soldiers lying on either side of the Halha River. But perhaps the army general staff at this moment realized that it was that kind of thinking that got them into this position in the first place. So General Hashimoto, chief of the operations division, quietly said, Yes. Asogi had the opening he sought. Going on his own offensive, the proud man argued his points 
over and over, going around and around with General Hashimoto, each exchange becoming more and more impassioned. Finally, General Nakajima, Deputy Chief of the General Staff, ended the argument, but not with an order that the settlement policy would be obeyed, but by merely saying the Japanese army could not, on its own, decide the matter. Most assuredly, Asogi disagreed with this, but all he said was that he would take the paper back to Kuangtung for review. Although the settlement paper wasn't a direct order, and it boggles the mind of some in other armies why it was not, most other Japanese units would have treated it as such. But the men of the Kuangtung had been left to their own devices for too long. To be sure, the settlement was written in such a way as to acknowledge all of the successes and casualties of the Kuangtung, and in that wording was forced to water down the tone of the document. The Army General Staff would learn of their failure again as the guns of the Kuangtung opened up on July 23rd on the Russian-Mongol forces near the Haha. That Komatsubara had lost did not strengthen the hand of the Army General Staff, who let this latest violation of their known desire go unpunished. Yet the ranking men back in Tokyo did do something. On August 4th, a new entity was created on the mainland. The 6th Army, which was put under the command of General Ogisu, a hero of the war against China. Komatsubara's 23rd Division, as well as other units in western Manchukuo, were put under his command as well. But it must be said, all this was just on paper. Ogisu had an office, a few men, but that was it. The soldiers with guns were still in their units in western Manchukuo, and immediately under the command of the same men. This reorganization brought about exactly zero change. As both sides were readying for another assault, the Japanese and Russians, not Tokyo and the Kuangtung, changes were already taking place behind each side's respective border, as well as in Eastern Europe. During late July and early August of 1939, the tension between Germany and Poland was rising, daily, with the Germans making demands the Polish would not meet. But as this went on, the Germans, seeking not to expand their next conquest, as well as the British and the French, sought alliances with Moscow. This gave Stalin the freedom he needed in the East to deal decisively with the Japanese. And he already knew, through his spies in Tokyo, that they did not want to enlarge this conflict. So, he was free to do so. By early August 1939, orders were going out from Moscow to send General Zhukov massive reinforcements. He had already just received two new infantry divisions, a tank brigade, an airborne brigade, several artillery units, and two Mongol cavalry divisions. And now, even more men and material were coming his way, post-haste, along with substantial new air units. When all was said and done, Zhukov now had four divisions worth of men, two cavalry divisions, 498 armored vehicles, just over 200 artillery guns, and just under 600 aircraft. As the ground behind Zhukov's line must have shaken, with the weighed-down trucks of men and supplies, of the rail lines, 
the Japanese were unaware of the majority of this epic transfer of men. Their intelligence about eastern Mongolia was never strong, and it was not improved during these series of battles. That, coupled with their pullback of air reconnaissance, meant that they never truly had an idea of what was before them. Fortunately for the Japanese, what espionage they did have picked up a signal that spoke of a Russian offensive that was to start in mid-August. Perhaps here was the chance the Japanese had been looking for. As brave as their man had been, and no one ever doubted that, it is relatively easier to prepare for defense than to assume attack. Their men and guns could be concentrated, and as the enemy came at them, this would demand that their guns stop firing, in fear of hitting their own men. Perhaps the Russians could be ground up as they approached the Japanese lines for a change. Because at this point, the leaders of the Kuangtung were really looking for a revenge battle, something they could claim as a victory, which would allow them to then pull back, having got in the last slap across the face. So, as this intelligence was received, Kuangtung headquarters became excited. Perhaps now was the time to bring the rest of the 7th Division in central Manchukuo to Nomaha. It was, after all, the best, most experienced division in the area. But the operations section of the 7th Division said that their men, being the last of the reserves in Manchukuo, had to remain free. Russian forces were moving around in the east, near Chengkufeng, and not knowing what that prefaced, prudence called for the reserve to remain put. Still, one regiment of the 27th, the 28th Regiment, would be paired off with another one from the Mukden garrison to help repulse the coming attack. But these two regiments would not be swelling the ranks of Komatsubara's 23rd Division. By now, he had lost 1,400 men dead with another 3,000 wounded, so his numbers were really just coming up to par. When the reinforcements were in place, they would, in total, be a division and a half worth of men. Still, they were on their way to western Manchukuo. Meanwhile, Komatsubara, on orders from Kuangtun headquarters, was doing something they hadn't done in a very long time. The men were preparing their defenses, waiting to be attacked, by making fortifications and by extending and strengthening their defensive line. Yet between the 23rd Divisional Commander and some of his officers, they still hoped to resume the offensive after the Russian wave had broke itself on their fortifications. Pride is an expensive folly, affordable to only a few. As the defensive structures were going up, Colonel Numazaki, the commander of the division's engineer regiment, suggested to Komatsubara that he should move back some on his line, as there was more advantageous land behind them. But Komatsubara refused, replying that many of his men had died here for this land, so they would stay right here. The colonel got on with his work. Not that it would have made much difference to the outcome, but it would have been prudent to be closer to the nearest rail line for the defending Japanese. The Kuangtung army, in total, only had about 800 trucks to move men and equipment around. For comparison, Zhukov had over 8,000. 
So if reinforcements were needed, their last 200 miles would be as it had been before, on foot or by a few trucks. But as the days passed, doubt began to creep into the minds of the Japanese officers. The Russians weren't going to attack. It would have been suicide. Besides, Japanese military doctrine had always stressed attacking. This all somehow felt wrong. But Kuang Tung wanted it thus. So, thus it would be. Not that they knew every thought in Komatsubara's head. And now comes the sad but ineffectual tale of Unit 731. Unit 731 was a highly secret organization which specialized in biological and chemical warfare. Officially, they were the Water Purification Department, but in Harbin, their base, they carried out experiments on captured Chinese test subjects. Since it was officially a part of the Kuangtung Army, and the headquarters there could not endure another failure, men from 731 were sent to the Haha River to pour some of their concoctions into the river system. But during and after the coming battle, no report was ever written about any mysterious deaths or cholera-like symptoms. But this move shows the desperation of the Kuangtung leadership. A quick postscript of Unit 731. As the overall war wound down, the facility at Harbin was destroyed. The last 150 Chinese subjects were killed and their bodies burned. The men who worked there were sworn to secrecy on pain of death, and the leaders of 731 would eventually trade what knowledge they had acquired for leniency with the United States officials. Such is the ever-sad note of war with its desperate times and desperate measures. Zhukov's reinforcements continued to arrive by truck throughout late July and early August, but his operational plan of attack lingered. He simply did not have the information he needed to minimize his losses during an attack. The Japanese soldiers were too loyal, the civilians in the area too few, and they were the normal avenue to information. For now, all Zhukov knew was where the Japanese defensive line was and the closest Japanese guns to that line, but nothing else. Fortunately, his newly promoted commander of the 149th Mechanized Infantry Regiment took the initiative, something not normally done in Soviet Russia, but most desirable in military matters. And he snuck close to the Japanese lines during a few nights in early August, and he brought back what Zhukov needed, the chink in the Japanese defensive armor. While Komatsubara's line was solid, its northern and southern ends were held by Manchukuoan cavalry, and the enemy had no real mobile reserves. What the Japanese had, they put into the line. Those who were held back would not be dashing anywhere during the fight. With this new information, Zhukov made his simple, it could be no other, attack plan. His were not German soldiers with years of training and experience under their belts. His first army group would be divided into three sections. Group Central, directed by him, would attack the line's center, just a few miles east of the Halha River. This group was mostly made up of men and artillery, but their job was not to force the line, but merely to hold the balance of the 23rd 
in place. Meanwhile, his northern and southern sections, which would have most of his armor, would attack the relatively weak ends, turn them in, and so change the Japanese line into a semicircle. Then all three sections would press in and annihilate the Japanese force. All of it. The key to a Russian victory was tactical surprise and hitting the weak ends with as much force as possible. Moscow was making sure the latter would be successful, but as for the former, Zhukov had very definite plans on how this was to be achieved, and so began to put these into motion. <laughs> 